This is Archive Atlanta, Episode 38, African American Hospitals. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, I'm so excited to be with you again and say happy Friday. I missed you guys. Not gonna lie though, my time off was very much needed and very productive, but I am so excited to be back and sharing new episodes with my listeners. Two kind of upgrades I want to mention. The first is that I am recording in the spaceship tent full-time. So I have taken it back from my parents' house. It is my new podcast recording booth. Um, and I keep saying I'm going to post a picture, but I, I really am. Keep a lookout for that on social media. The second one is much more exciting and is that I finally created a Patreon account. So many people that don't know what that is, I explain it kind of like a GoFundMe for artistic endeavors. On this website, you can pledge a monthly gift that supports people creating things. And there are so many things on that website you can choose from, um, lots of amazing projects. And the way it's supposed to work is that your monthly gift to me will give you a perk. Maybe it's an early episode or a bonus episode or special content. And the problem is that in this short break that I took, I still haven't won the lottery. Uh, I still have a child, last time I checked, and I still have two jobs. So I haven't been able to produce the amount of special content that I would like to give to you guys. But instead of continuing to let this idea go by month after month, I decided to set up with just one tier. So there is a dollar per month tier. And that gift allows me to buy more books, sign up for online kind of memberships that can give me more primary source resources, I've been getting very much into the primary sources and it's been so much fun to do and just giving me better information to give to you guys. So if that sounds um, interesting to you, there is a link in the show notes or you can go to patreon.com forward slash archive Atlanta. This week, I get to tackle a topic that has been on my mind since the beginning of the podcast. As I mentioned in the Grady Hospital episode, there is an interesting history of Atlanta's African-American medical facilities and professionals. And maybe for some people, this topic might be irrelevant or boring or you're just like, eh, I'm not interested in it. But I want to express that each and every episode I research, I learn more and more about the societal issues that we have in our present day. There are too many people out there that don't understand systemic issues of racism or patriarchy. So for many people, racism, let's say for an example, is just an act of one person that hates people of another race. But when you look at history and you learn the systems that are enacted in America and how they affect people of color, women, LGBTQ, etc., my naive hope is that we learn some new neural pathways, as my friend Bill says, that will make us more empathetic and understanding but also inspire change in the way that we interact with the world. The earliest African Americans in Georgia were enslaved, and the medical care for these enslaved people was abysmal. Now we have to remember that these people were considered property with an attached monetary value. So for slave owners, they definitely want to protect their investment. The general idea was to have them live as long as possible, but the estimated amount spent on their medical care is about $3 a year per enslaved person. White scientists and doctors would often use these enslaved men, women, and children in medical experiments, medical procedures. If that knowledge is news to you, please press pause and take out Google um, and look this up because it's really uh, incredible yet disturbing history. 
Because of this lack of health care, Southern blacks in the period before the end of slavery were treating themselves with medicinal plants, herbs, homeopathy, and that's its own fascinating piece of history. could probably be its own podcast episode one day. In parts of the United States where slavery was not standard practice, we would see the graduation of the first African-American medical student from a U.S. school in 1847. In 1852, in Augusta, Georgia, the first hospital is built solely for the care of black patients. Jackson Street Hospital was opened by a group of white physicians, and it had an all-white medical staff. More than a decade later, in the last year of the Civil War, the first African-American woman graduates with a medical degree in Boston. In 1881, the first nursing school for black students is actually established at Spelman College right here in Atlanta. Atlanta would actually be the place where the National Medical Association is formed, which is the nation's largest and oldest organization for African-American physicians. As the story always goes, black doctors had been barred from joining the American Medical Association, and so they formed their own. And the charter members met at the Cotton States International Exposition, which I explained in the Piedmont Park episode, but then those founding members agreed to have a meeting at First Congregational Church, which I just mentioned um, in the Church's Part 1 episode. It's here that the National Medical Association would be born. As I share all of these accomplishments and first, let me remind you that early Atlanta was not a place of health and the situation in Black communities was deadly. In 1885, the death rate for Black Atlantans was two and a half times greater than whites. The reasons and this topic in general can fill its own episode. But our early city did not have paved roads, it did not have city sewers, it had polluted waterways, and so neighborhoods are created very much by the physical landscape. Higher ground and access to natural water source ensures it's going to be a white area. Black settlement is in low-lying land and alleyways, where outhouse runoff, sounds gross, but yes, would naturally flow to those neighborhoods. By the year 1900, not much has improved the black death rate exceeded the white by 69%. African-American deaths accounted for 50% of the city's deaths, while only accounting for 40% of its total population. The saddest statistic I had read is that about 45% of black babies did not see their first birthday, but even worse is that they were dying from preventable diseases caused mostly by polluted water sources. So let's talk about black hospitals in Atlanta. Crawford Long, Piedmont Hospital, Emory University, Georgia Baptist, the Henrietta Eggleston Hospital for Children, St. Joseph's Infirmary, and Scottish Rite were only available for the white population. For those suffering from mental illness, either white or black, care was available at the Milledgeville State Hospital, which had opened in 1841. There was a place called the Battle Hill Sanatorium, which was open from 1910 to the 1940s, and that cared from those suffering from tuberculosis, from both races. Now, tuberculosis in the Black community in Atlanta could honestly be its own episode. I found in my reading there was a huge movement by local Black women to form committees, unions, groups that cared for TB um, and worked on preventing the spread of it. Because the tuberculosis epidemic in the city was so great, it's one of the few times that the white and Black healthcare community worked together. In the 1920s, there was a Good Samaritan Clinic, which was partially supported by an annual appropriation from the city. So it would treat both white and black residents that were unable to afford care in other places. 
The DeKalb Clinic provided the same type of service in the 1940s. And then also in that same decade, you see the opening of the Catholic Colored Clinic. Established by the Catholic Medical Mission, it was a 125-bed, 200-doctor hospital serving the Black community of Southwest Atlanta. So as the story always goes, when you have severe segregation and Jim Crow laws affecting a city, the Black community takes it upon themselves to create the spaces that are missing and needed for their care. There are some early hospitals that I saw their names, but there's so little information, um, really like one name or one photo. That The two that stick out are Mercy Hospital, and that was on Edgewood near William Holmes Borders Drive. And then there was a hospital called Dunbar. And Dunbar Hospital was actually the most famous one was in Detroit. So it's very difficult to find information um, of Dunbar hospitals in other cities. But the hospitals I'm going to mention today, most of them actually have a lasting physical legacy. So yes, you can see many of them, although I will forewarn you that you may not know you're passing a hospital and they're not in the best of states. MacVicar Hospital opened in 1900 as a public 30-bed hospital and training school on Spelman's campus. Fourteen years prior, Spelman had started the first nursing school, like I said. These students were the ones practicing at MacVicar. The facility was named for a white man, Malcolm MacVicar, who was superintendent of education for the American Baptist Home Mission Society. I've talked about this, uh, I think it was a Gaines Hall episode and many others, but many of these early school for blacks were started by white missionaries with white philanthropic money. This was the case at Spelman. Their earliest nursing program would close by 1928, but the hospital was then kind of converted to an infirmary for all of the students at the Atlanta University Center. When we talk about this hospital, you cannot omit talking about Ludie Clay Andrews. She was superintendent of MacVicar for 15 years, but she also happens to be the first African-American registered nurse in the state of Georgia. This is about 1920. She graduated from Spelman, she organized the entire registered nurse curriculum at the Lula Grove Hospital and Training School, which was a very small hospital created by white physicians to treat black patients. In 1914, it would be Miss Andrews that founded the Grady Hospital Training School for Colored Nurses before she herself became a registered nurse in the state. She would serve at MacVicker for 20 years. So this is one you can still see today. Technically, if you're a Spelman student, so it is on their campus, it is named MacVicker Hall, and it houses the College Department of Student Health Services. The next hospital is another associated with an HBCU. Fairhaven Infirmary was established in 1909 by six African-American doctors as a private institution. It was small, only a 12-bed capacity with one operating room for major surgery. The hospital was located on the campus of Morris Brown, but this is back when Morris Brown was in the Old Fourth Ward, kind of at Boulevard and Houston, which would now be John Wesley Dobbs. This was the only place in Atlanta where black surgeons and physicians could hospitalize their patients and treat them, and white physicians could also place their black patients here. It would become the official hospital of the Southern Railway, the official hospital of the Central of Georgia, and the Atlanta Street Railway System. So basically, when any of those workers were injured, they would be sent here. I have a great photo from a newspaper article celebrating the opening of Fairhaven. Um, so I'm going to post that so you guys can see. 
This one is no longer there, as is the entire campus of Morris Brown is no longer in the Old Fourth Ward. It did move to the west side in the 1920s. The third hospital is Dwell Infirmary, and it was officially incorporated in 1920 thanks to the organizer and namesake, Georgia Dwell. There were 18 beds, and it was staffed with doctors of both races. Dwell was born in Georgia, the daughter of a former slave. She would become the first Spelman College graduate to attend medical school. After graduating from Meharry Medical College with honors, by the way, uh, when she was taking the state bar medical exam, she got the highest score of the year, both men and women, and she was noted for her, quote, unusual ability and thoroughness, end quote. So I guess smart women were considered unusual at the time. But she came back to Atlanta in 1906, and she set up an OBGYN practice. She was only one of three black women practicing medicine in the entire state, and after being inspired to change the poor health conditions of the poorest black residents, she opened the Dwell Infirmary, or the Dwell Sanatorium. Standing on Boulevard Avenue, it was Georgia's first general hospital specifically for African Americans, and the first obstetrical hospital for black women. So there's a general infirmary section and then a pediatric clinic. And it also had the state's first venereal disease clinic for black residents. This woman was just kicking butt. She was quoted in the 1940s in a speech saying, quote, competent women physicians could find or create their own opportunities within the profession. And she was all about prevention. She held the first mother's club meetings, they called them. It was basically like a mom's group um, for black women. But they held it in conjunction with well baby clinics that they had in the 1930s. In her time in Atlanta, Georgia Dwell was a member of the um, Women's Christian Temperance Union, which I talked about in the Women's Club episode. She was on the board of directors at the Urban League um, and the Carrie Seal Orphanage. She was vice president of the National Medical Association, and the list goes on. She um, had her hand in every organization. She retired and moved to Chicago, and the clinic closed in 1949. So next up, McClendon Hospital opened in 1949, and it was located in three buildings spread out along Sharon Street in what is now the neighborhood of Hunter Hills and Mosley Park. Dr. Frederick Earl McClendon was a native of Washington, Georgia, which, by the way, is my favorite place outside of Metro Atlanta, and a prominent and wealthy African-American physician in the city. His house was actually legendary in Collier Heights, shout out episode 32, because it took out a whole block and had an indoor pool. And um, he began his hospital to serve, like everyone else, the underserved black community. And I found some of his old letterhead online, and the top of each page, every single page, said, quote, good health is an envied and priceless possession, end quote. Like I said earlier, McClendon Hospital was three buildings in total, and it kind of dispersed through a residential block. So it's difficult to maybe point out, because there's houses all around, um, for a time, two of the three buildings still stood, but currently we're down to one. So that building is for you to see. It's on the corner of Bernard and Chickamauga. I'm totally saying that name wrong. It's not hard to miss. It almost looks like a house but then it has an addition next to it that makes it appear more commercial. The most recent building um, to be demolished, I think it happened in 2001 or 2002, that was on the corner of Chickamauga and Sharon, so there's a home there now. 
There is a beautiful, large brick home kind of behind the corner where the house is. I'm doing a really bad job of explaining this, but <laughs> I'm going to try to put some photos on the website for you guys. Um, But I've read that that was the home of Dr. McLendon before he moved off Collier Heights. Both McLendon and the hospital I'm about to talk to next were considered private and generally from middle class to upper middle class African Americans. Not saying that the people that were born there, there's many people walking around today that were born in these hospitals, um, had to be upper middle class. But again, it was a place if you had some money, you'd be transferred there or go there for care. The last hospital I'm going to talk about today is one that we can still see, sort of. Be forewarned, it looks nothing like what we assume a hospital looks like today. It also doesn't seem to be in use. Um, but like McClendon, it looks a little bit like a house. It's also really easy to pass the William Harris Memorial Hospital, which stands today at 975 Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. Now, it opened in late 1920s, um, maybe into the 1930s, by power couple Sadie and Charles Powell. Sadie was born in Atlanta in 1889 to William and Aurelia Harris. So if you're paying attention, her father is whom the hospital was named after. Now, her father has a long history in Atlanta, um, beginning his career as a teacher, then going on to Meharry Medical College and practicing medicine back in Atlanta. Now, she graduated from Spelman in 1910 and got her nursing degree in Chicago. So when she returned home, she would serve as the head nurse at Fairhaven Hospital, which she talked about there at Morris, Morris Brown. And in 1919, she would marry surgeon Charles Powell. So together, they would open another one of the very few privately held hospitals for Black Atlantans. Charles would perform the surgeries, and Sadie acted as superintendent. Sadie um, passed away in 1964, and she's actually buried at Oakland Cemetery. We'd like to visit her. So there you have it the story of the hospitals serving Black Atlanta during Jim Crow segregation and the people who operated them. The buildings that are left, not on a college campus, are in really rough shape. And this fits into a larger discussion about preservation, how to use these buildings to tell these stories and kind of keep these stories alive. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please feel free to leave a comment or let me know. My contact info is always in the show notes. And again, if you've been enjoying the podcast and you'd like to contribute a dollar a month, you are welcome to go to the Patreon link also in the show notes. I hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.